0: Yeah, JB Priestley had this kind of radio broadcast during the Second World War called Postscript that was very, very popular and sort of reflected the emergent new culture of the post war welfare state. You know, there's this kind of read oh f- mm, that's
1: a loud one today.
0: No. There's your postwar welfare state. <laughs> for me. Yeah.
1: Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Core blimey over here is Daniel.
0: What are they saying? Uh... Whistling Dixie, (laughs) here is Abby.
1: Yep, exactly the part of the world I'm from. So we don't have any letters or recommendations today. Uh, We do have an announcement about our new master's degree in English here at Aston University. Plug it. So that program is starting in September 2023, and it's specifically geared towards teachers of English. Um, Anyone can do it, obviously, but it's more specialized to help teachers of English. So if you are a teacher in the Midlands area and you would like Daniel and I to teach you and bring some of this baffling energy to you right to your front doorstep, then please apply we also have our tournament bracket up on Twitter if you would like to vote. Daniel and I have decided that if we do a season four in 2023, we're going to let you all, our lovely audience, pick one of our texts. One so just one. Don't get greedy now. But go over there and vote. We're doing a sort of new um, tournament bracket, a new pair of texts to choose between every week. So, Daniel, what is our text today?
0: Things have been hard. We've had to struggle to make sacrifices to make tough decisions not everybody made it yeah we pity them sure but we should be proud of our successes and ignore the grumblings of those we've left behind we shouldn't be ashamed of the great things we've won by right for ourselves now is a good time but an ever better one stretches before us made in our image an era of peace prosperity progress you might call it the end of history even (laughs) but what year is it 1912, 1945, 1992, 2007, it's all of the above, because we are doing An Inspector Calls by J.B. Priestley.
1: Right, so it goes without saying that we are about to spoil this play for you. The trigger warnings are suicide, alcoholism, being forced into sex work, sexual assault, abandonment, and ham-fisted writing. Uh, Very good. Would you like to do some background, friend?
0: Yes, please. J.B. Priestley. He was a mid-20th century English writer from Bradford. He wrote novels, plays, screenplays, travelogues, and so on, all of which explore everyday life and social issues from a left-wing perspective. During the Second World War, he was also a broadcaster for the BBC. Does this remind you of anyone?
1: It does, actually. Yeah, it
0: might remind you of someone from our previous series. One Eric Blair. Who? A.k.a. A- a- George Orwell. Well, he didn't see any resemblance. He denounced Priestley as a possible communist spy alongside a lot of other big names. Charlie Chaplin, Katharine Hepburn, Paul Robeson, Michael Foote. So, quite good company. I don't know if you agree. Would you like to be on that list?
1: I'd mostly just like to hang out with Katharine Hepburn, whether I'm a commie or not.
0: Yeah, Michael Foote. Probably less interesting. J.B. Priestley had this kind of radio broadcast during the Second World War called Postscript that was very, very popular and sort of reflected the emergent kind of new culture of the post-war welfare state. One of the historical readings of his thing is that he influenced, or maybe he just reflected, the development of the welfare state. Anyway, and Inspector Calls, that's very much about this context, isn't it? It's a kind of almost a parody of a sort of Agatha Christie style whodunit in which a mysterious police vector visits the Burlings, who are this kind of bourgeois factory-owning family, and he shows them how society, them in particular, done it. So the idea is that it's all about social interdependence.
1: He's like, let's take Murder on the Orient Express, expand it. Everyone's complicit, but also make it
0: shit. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. think
1: I think evoking Agatha Christie in this was a real mistake on his part. Yeah. Because it's not savvy enough to sort of toy with her conventions in a way that's fun. It just it. I just was thinking the whole time, God damn it, I'd really rather be reading Agatha Christie. No,
0: yeah. Well. Who done it? Work better as shows, kind of trying to get one on over each other and having kind of very selfish interests. Whereas having a kind of social reading, sort of kills the function of the who But
1: it could have been done well. Oh, I'm sure there are There's... better
0: ways of doing it, but this is not it. Yeah, set in 1912, but it was written in the 40s. Premiered in 1945 in Moscow. Three out of four Russian-related texts so far on the series. It's interesting. What's, who's been who's been greasing our palm? <laughs> uh, Yeah, it had a massive renaissance in the 1990s when it was revived by Stephen Daldry and we'll talk about that a bit, won't we? Because this is a very sort of long-running revival. I think it's the longest-running revival of a play ever. I've seen it, you know, even I've seen it and I never go out. Stagings are quite different. The initial production was kind of quite a conventional drawing room piece. The 1990s revival is more like symbolic and expressionistic. There's a kind of... The Edwardian characters are in this kind of World War II landscape, and it's all very sort of clever, clever, and you know, we can talk about that down the line. Uh, it's all about kind of historical irony, obliviousness, blame. All my favourites. <laughs> <laughs> so, we open on the Burling Household in Brumley, North Midlands, 1912.
1: Could we talk about Brumley? Yeah. Bromley isn't a real place, is it, in the North Midlands? No. But it's supposed to be... It's kind of like a Birmingham light. No. Isn't it? No, no, no. I thought it was supposed to be big manufacturing city.
0: I think it's smaller than that. I think it's more of like a town dominated by a okay. handful of mills. I was imagining more like Stoke or... Also, Birmingham's not the North Midlands, is it?
1: Well, no, but I didn't know if it was trying to...
0: Uh subtly shift yeah. it. It could be Birmingham, I suppose. I don't know. I never imagined it as such. You look at a map of the Midlands, there's loads of like... No offence to the Midlands, right, but loads of crappy sort of mid, mid-tier manufacturing, ex-manufacturing now, towns.
1: Well, we've just lost all of our 2nd division midlands listeners. That's the
0: thing about Birmingham, though, is it's like the king of the second division. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a really big, it's like a rat king. <laughs> a rat king amongst rats. Anyway, this prosperous manufacturing family is having a celebratory dinner. Celebratory. 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 <laughs> The father, Arthur, he's a sort of, uh, you know, self-made man. Uh, Abby's written, dirtbag with money. Am I wrong? Um, well, he's not real. <laughs> but from what I can infer from his character, yes, you're, you're right. Uh, the mother, Sybil, is his cold social superior. He married up.
1: The prefab I have here is, she's like a star, shimmering, distant, and her light went out long ago.
0: Well, because, um... Relativity.
1: <laughs> she didn't, just... the, didn't the
0: theory of relativity come out in 1912? Didn't Einstein oh. publish that? That's what it's all about. There is a time shit thing.
1: A, a time shit? Yeah. What's a time shit?
0: time shit going on.
1: Oh, there is cri- not. There's not a. Crazy time. It's bit.
0: a solitary time. It's just on the carpet. <laughs> no one, no one's admitting it.
1: We never. it's not in stage directions?
0: <laughs> this is
1: in our avant-garde production. Yeah,
0: there we go. That's my casting. Oh
1: then. no, we're off to a horrible start. Okay. Yeah. Um,
0: they have a shy son named Eric.
1: And he's a bit of an idler and a trifler. If only we knew any other useless Eric's who were the sons of tacky rich men. Maybe there'd be an interesting parallel there. Uh, but we don't.
0: No. They have a pretty daughter named Sheila. You know what, Sheila? Yeah, that's not my accent, guys. I know what it's trying to be, but I don't know what it is. And they have a youngish family friend who's a sort of man about town called Gerald.
1: So it turns out that Sheila, the daughter, and Gerald, the family friend, just got engaged, and that's what the family is celebrating. And they all tease each other in that cute way families do, and it's just perfectly revolting. Just nothing about their interactions in this opening bit is organic. They're all engaging with each other like goddamn Sims. That is, until Eric, the son, who's a bit of a Donnie Darko type, he kind of laughs weirdly and it throws everyone off. So Arthur, the dad, tries to save the night by making a speech, and it turns out that Gerald's father is Arthur's business rival, and they're uniting the businesses through this marriage to bring about, quote, lower costs and higher prices. Mm, Just what every bride dreams of hearing.
0: Secretly, yes.
1: So it's revealed that Gerald and Sheila have had a bit of a split up about six months ago. Kind of. Gerald went AWOL. She suspects that he was dating someone else, but he keeps going, No, of course not. I was doing my businessman things, all above board. And I just don't have a lot of hope for this marriage. I mean, Sheila's basically already put divorce on her Pottery Barn gift registry.
0: Then the dad insists on making another speech. He's grateful the kids are marrying at such a good time for business. So here's what he says. I'm delighted about this engagement and I hope it won't be too long before you're married. And I want to say this. There's a good deal of silly talk about these days, but, and I speak as a hard-headed businessman who has to take risks and know what he's about, I say you can ignore all this silly pessimistic talk. When you marry, you'll be marrying at a very good time. Yes, a very good time. And soon, it'll be an even better time. Last month, just because the miners came out on strike, there's a lot of wild talk about possible labor trouble in the near future don't worry we've passed the worst of it we employers are at last coming together to see that our interests and the interests of capital different things are properly protected and we're in for a time of steadily increasing prosperity also he says that world war one's not going to happen doesn't he says that it's all fiddlesticks. So.
1: And he even has a friend sailing on this unsinkable ship, the Titanic, next week, and airplanes are coming and everything's progress, and by 1940, war will be a thing of the past because capitalism will solve it for all of us. Yes,
0: he does say that, doesn't he? Yeah.
1: You wanted a sort of foreshadowing klaxon yeah, here. Yeah,
0: write that in there. Sort of, uh... Well, the, whole, the whole play is about foreshadowing, isn't it? But I think... Historical foreshadowing right here. Do you call that proleptic irony? I don't know. <laughs> proleptic irony works within a narrative, doesn't it? But does it work when you're talking like historically? Is that just historical irony?
1: Mm, I don't know. Good question, I don't know. But at the very least, we can assume that most of these assholes will be dead in two years because they're all going to go to the Great War. So this is the part in the play very early on where we start to spell out the message in billboard high lettering. And if that's too subtle, later on they get out the semaphore flags.
0: Is but, What is the message though?
1: capitalism being seen as the savior for most things but it's actually destructive
0: okay yeah sorry i thought you had something more specific than that but no i suppose that's fair enough
1: so after dinner everyone leaves except arthur and gerald who stay to have their port in that way that rich men do let me get some class stuff here. I know what you're thinking. In Britain, madness. But Arthur, who's embarrassed by his lower class status, asked Gerald if his mother, Lady Croft, objects to Sheila, and if she thinks that maybe Gerald could have married someone of a higher rank. Like, first of all, almost definitely. But but you know what, Gerald? You tell your mother not to worry, cause I, Arthur, was Lord Mayor of this sh town two years ago when royalty visited. Ooh. Which royalty do you think? It's clearly like some second division.
0: What? The like family Grand Duke members? Of Ruritania. Oh, you mean like within the British royal family? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Probably some crap. I couldn't name.
1: Couldn't. Wouldn't shouldn't who, really
0: who what, who did they have around in 1910?
1: Well, that's what I was trying to figure out. Maybe it was maybe it was just Bertie as a boy.
0: Could have been the Kaiser. He was part Ooh. of the royal family, would not he?
1: And Arthur even says he's been getting hints that he might get a knighthood soon. So we have all this really, this wasn't very subtle class tension no. as well. I was yeah. like living in Britain for the last 10, 11 years. You guys are so messed up with class, and I just don't think that this is capturing any of the very weird nuance. Then Eric, as Eric does, comes in and spoils the vibes. He's starting to get drunk, and he's like, Hey, if I only wanted one drink, I'd go to communion. Fill her up. Uh, I'm gonna party with the boys. And then he says something cryptic about the women in the other room getting excited over clothes, because bitches always be shopping. And so Arthur uses this opportunity to give us yet another long speech, because the man is a human drum solo. He's like, no, we're all listening to me now. I'm gonna do my thing. So he goes on about the youth today having it so easy, how in his day everyone worked twice as hard. I'm like, sir, in your day soda also had cocaine in it. But Arthur's major point is that you need to look out for number one, you cannot believe all this bollocks about socialism and us living in a social contract where people in society take care of each other.
0: Yeah, I thought there was something kind of innocent about Mr. Burling thinking that you won't come to much harm if you just keep to yourself and just do your job. That seems like very naive. The utopianism of that sort of right-wing worldview. Is that you think that you'd be alright if you just work hard? Where's it? I suppose. Work like that?
1: <laughs> no, I, I suppose that is a rather sweet way of reading it. He's um, a tragic
0: figure in that sense. The play's a bit like Oedipus, I think, and I think he's a kind of Oedipal figure, isn't he, in the sense that a self made man that is oblivious to his own various failings. Then, an inspector calls. Uh, get the claxon for that.
1: We don't have one. Hello, hello, hello. What's all this then?
0: He's let in by the maid.
1: So the, the noted s**t has entered the play.
0: His name is Inspector Ghoul. Comes in, greets the men, and says that a young woman has just died in the local infirmary after swallowing a disinfectant. Uh, it was suicide, not an accident, and she's left a diary. Her name is Eva Smith.
1: Any relation? To me? Yeah. Well, it's this neck of the woods. Could you know, be. Could laboring, be. Laboring
0: stock. stock. Uh, she worked in the supermarket, didn't she? Um, <laughs> Arthur is vaguely familiar with the name, but he isn't sure how he knows it. The inspector shows Arthur a picture of her, but he won't let Eric or Gerald see it.
1: Wait, I'm sorry. Arthur is vaguely familiar with somebody whose last name is Smith. They could have given her something a little bit
0: jazzier. Aloysius Shabadoo. (laughs) She might be a bit of an everywoman. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, I know. No, no, I know you know that. (laughs) Because it says that later on. (laughs) Um, Eva Smith worked for him. Arthur, that is. But he was fired by... No. But she fired him. No. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) But he fired her two years ago. She had instigated a strike at the factory, and that is not allowed, is it? You shouldn't do that.
1: I wrote, that's simply just not cricket, because I wanted you to say it so badly. I don't think
0: Arthur Burling or Eva Smith would say that.
1: But Daniel, it's not fun when you don't take the bait.
0: Arthur denies any link between his actions and Eva's suicide. The inspector says, well, I'm here to investigate a chain of events following your actions. And Bernie's like, oh, well, put like that, there's something in what you say. Still, I can't accept any responsibility. If we were all responsible for everything that happened to everybody we'd had anything to do with, it would be very awkward, wouldn't it? Yeah, he's kind of right, isn't he? Like, How does that work then? How does justice in the form of the police and the law work in if you are going to extend it to everybody's connections, to everyone, everyone's complicity?
1: Well, that's why I think, first of all, this is the most boring episode of Cops I've ever seen. And secondly, I think this is why the play doesn't really work, because a moral condemnation of society and its structures is not the same thing as pursuing established law, yeah. which is Ghoul's prerogative. Job. Yeah,
0: I wonder if that's the point, though. I think maybe that's part of it, that Ghoul is the wrong instrument to solve the wrong problem, almost. Or something weird like that's going on. I feel like you could find something slightly cleverer. If you look I... really, really hard. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> you get out your jeweler's loupe. Yeah, exactly. So from this point on in the play, we don't really hear much from Arthur. He goes very quiet. So I guess he's a little um, overwhelmed by everything. He has to go sit quietly in the corner and reboot like he's a Windows ninety five operating system. So Sheila comes in uh, to where she assumes the men are just you know still having their port. And the men try to protect her from everything that's going on. They're like, don't learn about Eva's horrible death. Uh, but the inspector tells her anyway, and he says, you know what? I'm here to talk to everyone in the family because there's more to this than. Arthur realizes, and they all might be involved. In short, y'all better brace yourself because I'm about to root around your family secrets like a truffling pig. Mm -hmm. Everyone else says this is ridiculous. They've never even heard of an Eva Smith. So what if, you know, she worked for Arthur and instigated labor strikes and he fired her? That's his prerogative as a sort of Edwardian capitalist. That is, you know, just a scoop of vanilla, friend. This is nothing exciting on his part. (laughs) Ah, but, the inspector tells them, after... Eva Smith got sacked from the factory. She started going by a different name, so maybe you might know her as somebody else.
0: Aloysius Chabot. She's dressed as a man as well.
1: <laughs> Eva was desperate, no family, no money, just staring hungrily into windows like she's a little match girl out in the snow. But finally, after getting sacked, she managed to get a job in actually quite a nice dress shop, so things are on the up and up for her. But then she got fired when a customer complained about her. So the inspector pulls Sheila aside. He shows her Eva's photo. Sheila starts weeping and shaking like she's some sort of unhinged beauty pageant winner. In case you couldn't guess it, Sheila was the complaining customer. Oh, the complicity. And she confesses that she got Eva fired because... (laughs) This is so stupid. When she was shopping there... Sheila was admiring herself in the mirror as she's trying on this kind of ugly dress, and she saw Eva smiling knowingly at another assistant because the outfit Sheila was trying on was fug. And worst of all, Eva was kind of adorable, and she would have looked great in that sh outfit. would have suited her so much better. Yeah, so I feel like the inspector kind of needs a cool CSI Miami line at the end of every one of these exchanges. Like, this is the bit where he slowly puts on his sunglasses while saying, it sounds like it was... Death Cab for Cutie. Yeah. <laughs> In fairness to Sheila, this it does have to be a little bit embarrassing, especially because the store's motto is, if we can't make you look good, you ugly.
0: <laughs> Eric's there still, remember him? And he's like, oh, I'm quite drunk and I want to go to bed. I'm tired and I want to go to bed, all that stuff. The inspector says, no, we're not done torturing your sister. Apparently, Eva wrote about this incident in her diary. What a happy piece of evidence to find <laughs> for a detective.
1: How did she know what Sheila's name was? How did she know who the customer was? Was it because she had an account? They do
0: talk about... Oh, yeah, sorry. Man, I, yeah. I've forgotten that. Because the Burlings are big in Brumley. The Burlings of Bromley.
1: That's, um... That is so sad when you're, like, the biggest family in kind of a...
0: Yeah. Small oh, yeah. town. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you'll never measure bras in this fucking town again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so... After getting sacked from the shop, she changed her name to Daisy Renton. Uh, Gerald gasps. gasps. The inspector leaves the room to discuss something privately with Eric. Sheila, who's no fool, confronts Gerald and says he must have been dating this Daisy character six months ago when she and Gerald were on a break.
1: How unpredictable. I am shocked. Oh uh, yeah. And appalled, and I need to find some pearls to clutch. Who could have predicted?
0: Gerald says yes, but he says he hasn't seen Eva Daisy. Uh,
1: Yeah, what do we call her? Viola...
0: (laughs) uh, Viola Cesario. Cesario, we?
1: Are we going to... Should we just keep calling her Eva, even though she's also known as Daisy? Let's keep calling her Eva. Okay, but he hasn't seen
0: Eva Daisy in six months, and they should hide this information from the inspector. Sheila goes, Oh, don't be an idiot. Even if you hadn't given yourself away by gasping, he clearly has more info from Eva's diary, dummy. That's not a direct quote. (laughs) But that's how she talks.
1: Right, so that's the end of Act 1.
0: Hey, how many more have we got? Oh, too many. All right. okay.
1: So the inspector comes back in after whatever weird little conversation he had with Eric, and he's like, Alright, Sheila, I'm done with you. You can leave. Now that you're you're just like a graveyard of broken dreams and self-awareness, right? But he has more questions to ask other people. And Sheila's like, I am obviously going to stay. Are you crazy? And she grabs her popcorn and she pulls up a chair, ready to watch the rest of her family be emotionally destroyed. Gerald's like, No, darling, you should, you should leave. I want to protect young women from unpleasant things. And the inspector kind of says, Well, we all know one young woman who wasn't protected, don't we? And I just think this whole bit so mm. so naff.
0: Um, just briefly. Gerald accuses Sheila of wanting to stay so she can see Gerald put through the same treatment that she was. So there's a lot of sort of, um, schadenfreude stuff in the play, isn't there?
1: Well, yeah, this is a good start to an engagement. Yeah, I
0: think so. Also,
1: can we just ask, Inspector Ghoul, sir, is this a good use of taxpayer dollars? You said that this is clearly a suicide, so did your line manager sign you off on this investigation? Because, friend, the souls of men is not your jurisdiction. Um. This made me so mad the first time I read this. I'm like, why are you here? So Sheila and Gerald then start to bicker under all this pressure prompted by their massive guilt. And then Sybil Burling... Sheila's mother comes in to go up against the inspector. So she's kind of tagging in like it's pro-wrestling. She runs
0: in through the door in a funny way, doesn't she? And everyone goes, yeah!
1: (laughs) Sheila begs her not to because Sheila's anticipating postmodernism and Jean-Paul Sartre. uh, And she seems to realize we're in some sort of Tesco-value, gluten-free version of No Exit, where any participation is going to bring about your own special hell.
0: Ooh, clever. Clever, but also there's a bit of, you know, everyday stuff with the Tesco. That's the sort of joke I like. So, Sybil gives Sheila the brush off and starts embarrassingly throwing their position around in a very, do you know who my husband is, sort of way. The conversation takes a very weird turn when Eric comes in and both he and Sheila reveal that despite Eric's young age, he's a functioning alcoholic. And it's been getting steadily worse for the last two years. So, Sybil pretends not to have known, because she's like, she's very much in, self, like in a case of self denial, isn't she? Sheila tells her mother not to build up a wall between herself and other people, because the inspector is a canny one, and he'll knock that wall down and make it even worse for you for having done so. So, you yeah.
1: gotta confront your demons. Yeah, there's a
0: heavy handed metaphor about walls.
1: Oh, wait, 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 we've gotta have a bad CSI pun. There's gotta be, I couldn't really think of a good one, something like walls, demons.
0: Somebody is gonna be. Bricking it.
1: For Sybil, today is Wall Souls Day.
0: But <laughs> you mortar straighten up and fly right. <laughs> so you weren't a fan of the wall metaphor? Uh,
1: no, I... Th- Initially, I thought, well, because we get very, very few metaphors in this play, this doesn't give us very much to work with in terms of imagery.
0: Yes, it's a symbolically very uh, limited play, sparse.
1: So the inspector turns his investigation to Gerald, um, you know, he who has gasped uh, enormously and suspiciously, and he asks him when he got to know this Eva character. Apparently, they met at the theater in the cheap seats. How scandalous! So, it's this classic rich boy slumming it story, and the implication is that Eva turned to sex work after getting fired from the shop, and she went to the theater to sort of, you know, drum up a little business. And um, Gerald ended up rescuing her from being leered over by some gross guy. And Sybil sort of interjects here and she's like, hey, I know that guy. He's an alderman. Show some respect. Okay, so he's a notorious sexual assaulter, but an alderman, Gerald.
0: There, yeah, that's a new claxon for the podcast.
1: Also, what is the most heterosexual thing in the world and why is it an alderman? There are no queer readings in this play and something about this alderman has just really the deal. Reinforced that. Frankly, queer readings are what this play is missing. Go on. I want some hot Gerald-on-inspector action.
0: W- would those be the two, do you think?
1: Uh, throw Eric in there for good measure. Get messy with it.
0: As Gerald starts to talk about all of this, he gets overwhelmed that Eva is dead. And he continues. After he rescued her from the horrible alderman. And
1: and Gerald.
0: They went for a walk and chatted for a while. Eva said how hard up she was and out of pity instead of desire. Uh Uh-huh. Alright, you don't believe that? No. Okay. Gerald let her sublet his uh, mate's flat for free.
1: I pity a lot of people but I don't shack up with them.
0: Eventually though Surprise, surprise, she became his mistress. Time for the Mistress Claxon, please. Claxon. Uh Mistress Claxon Claxon from Mole Flanders. Let's get that in there right now. Okay. Hello, my name is Mistress Claxon. I'm a character in a Sheridan satire. Sheila asks if he loved her, but Gerald says no. It, it may, he was more interested in having his ego flattered and a few other things, no doubt. Um and it passed the time. Any man would have felt the same. But she was in love with him. So the implication is that she was too low class for him to be serious about her.
1: Yeah, he's like, why did I do it? Why does anyone do anything really? Exactly.
0: Yeah, he's just a pure libido, as not Gerald? <laughs> so eventually he had to go on away a way business trip. Don't know what that was. Look a bit of detail, but no. but <laughs> like. Could, could a you give us a, a little
1: texture, priestly? No, no, we're Tahiti,
0: good. To or something. <laughs> for the worsted factory. He had to go on a business trip and decided to break it off properly. Eva was heartbroken but gallant about it, saying that this was the happiest she's been in a long time, but she was like, well, I suppose it had to end at some point. She took the little money she saved and moved out of the flat. Gerald said that she'd talked about leaving Brumley. Oh, Brum, Brumley, yeah.
1: Are you just getting that now?
0: Sorry, yeah, Birmingham, Brumley. (laughs) Could be Bromwich as well, I suppose, like West Bromwich, but anyway. (laughs) He asks the inspector if she ever did leave Bromley. The inspector says yes, she moved to the seaside for a few months.
1: So Gerald says he's more distraught by this than he expected to be, and he asks if he can go for a walk if he promises to come back. And the inspector's like, yeah, sure. And as he's leaving, you know, he's starting to walk off all sad, like George Michael Bluth to that Charlie Brown song. Um, Sheila gives him back her engagement ring, and he's like, yeah, I was kind of expecting that. Sheila says she actually hated him a lot more at dinner when she knew that he was lying about when he disappeared during their courtship and blamed it all on work. And she respects him a lot more now for taking responsibility. But it's not like she can marry him now. They're, they're different people who have to confront the consequences of their actions and they'd have just have to get to know each other all over again. And Gerald's like, okay. And he leaves.
0: The inspector next turns to Sybil and shows her the photo of Eva. She doesn't recognize the girl, but the inspector says she's just pretending not to. Like she pretended she didn't know about Eric's drinking. She's a faker. (laughs) Then they hear the door slam. Has Gerald returned or Eric left? One of the the cliffhangers of the play. Uh, Arthur, who's been pretty quiet all during all of this, goes to check. It's Eric who's gone. So Sybil then admits that she's part of a, or is this something to admit? I don't know. yeah, she's a member of a ladies' charity for distressed women, and this Eva character did indeed show up two weeks ago asking for help. But she asked for help under a new name, Mrs. Burling, Sybil's own name.
1: Sorry, I thought I had something to say there, but I was struck dumb by how stupid this play is. Okay. So clearly Eva has gotten involved with either Arthur or Eric then, and is going by their name.
0: Oh, it could just be coincidence.
1: What, there's another Burling family she's wrapped up in? Right, it
0: just could be a pseudonym, couldn't it? Naturally, Sybil thought this was gross impudence, and rejected the young woman's request for financial help. So this is what she said. We're asked to look carefully into the claims made upon us. I wasn't satisfied with the girl's claim, and in spite of what's happened to the girl, since I consider I did my duty. You know, deserving or undeserving poor, all that.
1: But this play is just so heavy-handed and moralistically pleading that I feel like at the end of it, Nancy Pelosi is going to come out and ask me for $15.
0: Yes. yeah.
1: So Sybil defends her choice. This girl's request just didn't hold up to snuff, and she was proud, proud I say, of rejecting it, and she's done nothing wrong. The inspector yells at her and says she did something very wrong, because she knew the girl was going to have a baby because of course she was in plays like this there's only ever one way a woman can get into trouble and it's always an unwanted pregnancy and it's just it's such an exhausted trope uh
0: yeah i've written here that i want you to come up with alternative suggestions of what she could have happened to her this is not me being an arse. i genuinely want some suggestions for what could have happened to eva smith uh. list them
1: about to get nabbed for starting an illegal dogfighting ring. <laughs> Fell afoul of a curse. Exploited by a German spy for setting the groundwork for World War One.
0: Very good, yes.
1: Took a day job so miserable she offed herself. And also, isn't just being crushingly poor enough? We had to throw an unwanted kid on top of that. Um... Alright, yeah. The family is horrified that Sybil would turn down a woman who clearly needed help that badly, but Sybil doubles down. She says Eva was a liar and a commoner who couldn't have all of these fine feelings she professed, and if she even knew who the father of her baby was, she should have just compelled him to marry her and that would have just sorted it. Bitch, he could have been already married, he could be underage, which I'm not entirely sure how old Eric is. I was actually really hoping that this was a bit of a grift and that Eva was like happily taken care of, maybe not even pregnant at all, and just trying to get money out of these Got people the old cushion somehow. Up
0: yeah. Her, uh, top.
1: Sybil <laughs> then says that Eva told the ladies' charity that the father was just the silly young man who drank too much. Wink, wink. Who's that? Uh, and she refused to take any more of his money. And Sybil says that girls of her sort don't refuse money, so she must be lying. Eva told Sybil that the young man during one of his benders even confessed to her that he had been stealing the money he was spending on her, and she was so disgusted by that that she didn't want anything more to do with him. So clearly this is going to be Eric, and I just did not expect a white-collar crime twist from Junior this late in the play. I I respect him a lot more for this. I just think that he and Eva should bring down the factory from the inside. I hope he forges a bunch of paperwork and they turn it into a co-op.
0: Okay, Sybil, a moron of the highest order, she says no, I accept zero responsibility for the girl's suicide. It's this young lad, whoever he is, who should be found and made an example of. This lad's to blame, the inspector should go public with him, humiliate him and his whole family.
1: You know how people do that thing where they pull a shirt up over somebody's head before they sucker punch them? She is... Doing that to herself, she is pulling her shirt up over her head and exposing her tender undercarriage. I hate this play so f***ing much. God damn it! It makes me so mad I could just spit nails and die!
0: Well, maybe under communism we'll have better (laughs) plays, I don't know. So, Sheila can see where this is going, and she begs her mother to stop. Then, the door opens and Eric walks in. End of act two!
1: So the whole family starts squabbling and they're all disappointed in each other for different things. Everyone's pointing fingers. It just turns into the Salem bitchcraft trials here. (laughs) And the inspector's like, guys, do therapy later. I gotta get on with this investigation. And I'm sitting here going, investigation into what, sir? This is a clear-cut suicide. You told us that. So there better be a secret murder at the end of this because being an asshole is sadly not a crime.
0: What are the causes of suicide that would be blameless in the world of Inspector Ghoul, I'm wondering.
1: Well, exactly. Just like a pure depression sort of thing. Even then. Then we get
0: Eric's story. Stop. Eric is now outed as an alki. We all know that now, don't we? We love him for it. He goes to have a drink, because he obviously needs one. Even Inspector Ghoul says it, doesn't he? He knows his way around a decanter. What is this bit? Here's the stage direction? Eric goes for a whiskey. His whole manner of handling the decanter and then the drink shows his familiarity with quick, heavy drinking. What does that mean?
1: I think it means he's twizzling the crystal decanter around like he's Tom Cruise in Cocktail. Is it?
0: Is he uh, really like been doing all tricks and
1: yeah, he's doing like 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 a, an
0: ollie with it? It's
1: like <laughs> a, an ollie. He's like auditioning for Coyote Ugly.
0: Right. Okay. So he's on top of the drinks cabinet.
1: He's lighting fires around. around. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, I would like to see maybe like a mashup of different adaptations of this play (laughs) and how they deal with that particular stage direction. Hopefully some of them do have the coyote ugly element.
1: Right. So that's, that's our little stage direction. So Eric's, you know, knocking back the sauce and we get the rest of the story. After Gerald left her, Eva seemed to be trying her hand at sex work properly this time. You know, she had, she had nowhere to go and no money. Eric met Eva in the same place that Gerald had met her, at the theater. You know what they say, one man's trash is another man's unenthusiastic concubine. So they had some drinks, they went back to her place, but then she changed her mind, and she's like, yeah, I can't really do this. Eric, however, was in a bit of a mean drunk that night, and he pressures her to have sex with him out of a fear of what he'd do to her if she didn't comply. Eric's all of a sudden, like, a rapist now? Yeah. What the Uh, hell?
0: So, he ran into her again two weeks later, they had a few more drinks, and a better time.
1: Yeah, but you know she is faking every second of that. I mean, he was definitely getting the side B tracks of her fake moans.
0: Right, (laughs) okay. Uh, They meet up some more after that, and eventually she tells him that she's gonna have a baby. Eva says she doesn't want Eric to marry her, He's more of a kid brother type.
1: So. Yeah, let's let's be honest here. Eric is not exactly a young Paris at Mount Ida. Ain't no goddesses about to give him the golden apple of discord. Plus, I mean, compare him to the raw masculinity of Gerald.
0: Yeah, yeah, she's like, but I do need your help to support the kid. Eric doesn't fancy getting a job.
1: Oh, diddums, yeah. I'm sorry.
0: So he instead manages to get £50 pound to tide her over. How did he get the £50? Hmm, we'll find out. First of all, though, measuring worth. If you want to compare the value of £50 in 1912, there are four choices. You will know them.
1: <laughs> oh, God. The real wage
0: or real wealth value of that income, so that's the inflation one, is £5,267 today. In terms of labour earnings, it's twenty thousand pounds so That's quite a lot, isn't it? Imagine <laughs> that. That's a quite a... You know, it's not... It's like about the median salary or something, isn't it, these days. Relative income value of that uh, wealth is 31,410. So that includes, you know, inheritance and Finally, the kind of proportional clout within the economy is... Uh, you get your sound effects, you can't also make them. Uh, <laughs> this is only funny because of your, That's that sleepy sound effect. The relative output value of that income or wealth is £49,960. That's quite a lot of money to steal, isn't it? It's almost £50,000. In today's money. Imagine I can nick that.
1: Why Why did she need more than that then after that? If he gave her 50 quid, why is she going to a charity? You can't live on uh, 50 grand. Yeah. She is grifting him. You know what? I'm starting with Sybil.
0: Well, it's only 50 grand in sort of like economic I know. clout I know. or something.
1: Also, one of my favorite things is the first time I debuted the snoring sound effect and you asked if I made that myself. <laughs> <laughs> no is the answer no i did not okay but yeah so arthur who's been very very quiet after the he spent the first act just giving speech after speech and then these two acts he's just silent in the background pretty much this is when he flips out and he's like eric where the hell did you get 50 pounds um because apparently daddy keeps the purse strings real tight eric then admits okay i've been embezzling from your office father But when Eva figured out that it was stolen money, she kicked him to the curb.
0: Yeah, she's a saintly figure, isn't she? She's all good, all the way through. Oh, saintly Eva.
1: (laughs) Why are you locking eyes with me like this? (laughs) Keep going. Yes, so she may be beautiful and noble of heart, far beyond the lot of mortal woman, but that is cold comfort. Understandably, the whole family has a go at Eric. Um, the inspector gets in there and I'm like, yeah, keep going, inspector, we're near the end, this family is almost at a hit point. But this is when Eric, who, if you remember, went for a long walk in the middle of this, this is when he hears for the first time that Eva had gone to that lady's charity for help and his mother turned her away. Eric says it's his mother's fault that she killed Eva and her own grandchild, um, and the inspector just lays into everyone and says that they're all responsible for her death and they must never forget the role they played that it's too late to even say they're sorry. Are you sure you got the message of the play, though, Daniel? I mean, Priestley's barely told us 17 times.
0: Yeah, this is the sort of subverted Poirot moment coming, isn't it? <laughs> that You know, you're wondering why I've got you all here today. Well, you all did it. That's kind of the, the general gist. Should we have the kind of slightly, you know, the here's, here's the big message writ <laughs> large. This is Inspector Gould. Remember this, one Eva Smith is gone, but there are millions and millions and millions of Eva Smiths and John Smiths still left with us. With their lives, their hopes and fears, their suffering and chance of happiness all intertwined with our lives and what we think and say and do. We don't live alone, we are members of one body. We are responsible for each other and I tell you that the time will soon come when if men do not learn that lesson, then they will be taught it in fire and blood and anguish. Good night.
1: Um... Sir, this is a Wendy's drive through
0: <laughs> So the family all goes back to squabbling. Arthur laments about the public scandal and how he almost had a knighthood. You and me both. Uh, <laughs> both parents still deny any responsibility. Sheila then says, This is kind of a weird time for an inspector to show up. Do you think he actually was a, a real cop? Did anyone check his credentials?
1: When I read this initially, I actually live-tweeted my way through this play, and this is what I said at this point. I'm halfway through Act 3. If this dude is God or the family's Jiminy Cricket-style conscience or the ghost of Christmas past, I will burn this mother to the ground. I am not kidding. I will go effing bananas." That was my
0: reaction. Well, it is, I was we'd say this maybe more in the analysis, but it is very similar to a Christmas carol, isn't it?
1: Yeah. The doorbell rings at this point. The, the maid, Edna, who you know has been sort of flitting in and out of this play in the background, she says, it's Gerald. He's come back, as he promised. And while he was out on his walk, Gerald kind of had that uh, moment. He's (laughs) reached the same conclusion on his own. Inspector Ghoul might not be a real cop. And while he's walking, Gerald ran into a sergeant that he knew, and he asked about Inspector Ghoul. And the sergeant's like, sorry, there's nobody on the force by that name, or anyone who even sounds remotely like this guy. So, Arthur... Head of the family, been pretty quiet and passive up to this point. His daddy's back in town now that there's not another alpha male there. Mm. He's like, right, I'm going to confirm this for myself. And so he rings up the chief constable. It's true. Mm. There is no Inspector Ghoul on the force. I'd like it if he said it kind of like an old-timey Wild West person. There hasn't been a ghoul around Mm. these parts in a hundred years. That's not mine. That's from my favorite murder, but
0: it is still a thing. It's still a thing.
1: I was also really, really hoping that Edna the maid, who does come in and out of the play a little bit, had orchestrated some kind of distraction with Ghoul and was quietly robbing the family blind upstairs I really thought this play was going to go in a much cooler direction and that ghoul was some sort of like long con guy, getting them all worked up for completely pedestrian motives. Also
0: completely selfish motives.
1: Yeah, or that yeah, Eva was alive and maybe this was like a revenge scheme. I feel like this is such a wasted opportunity. Yeah,
0: you could make it a lot more satirical and a lot less...
1: Preachy. Well, because the preachiness, and then if it's yeah, exactly. really... Yeah, it's
0: undercut. It becomes a kind of... You're like, well, what is the message of the... You know, that like, would yeah, be so much more interesting.
1: I, for one, am just glad that this play finally answers that age-old question, what if socialism were a cop?
0: Sheila keeps repeating to the family that it doesn't matter if Ghoul was a real inspector or not, because what's important is what we all learned. You know, the friends we made along the way. We all, <laughs> we all engage with our demons. Arthur thinks that this could be some kind of corporate espionage hoax laid out by his enemies. He and Sybil go into kind of PR control mode, don't they? Eric and Sheila accept full blame for their role in Eva's death and Gerald, who kind of until this point had been of the sort of Eric and Sheila camp He's like, do we even know that we drove her to suicide? Are we sure we're responsible? All we know is that we were involved in our life at some point Are we even sure this is the same girl? So Gerald, he's turning He's turning again the whole enterprise
1: My dude, you were such a good egg for such a big part of this play Do we believe this character arc?
0: I think I do, yeah It's that sort of bourgeois self-protection thing that it's not like they're amoral, but you do recognize when you're like, bad things happen and you're all mixed up in it, but you're like, then it it, Mm goes, very quickly the kind of gears start turning and you you go into sort of self-preservation mode.
1: Once the authority is gone, once he finds out that Ghoul is not a real inspector on this force, that sort of undercuts all the blame he allowed himself to feel because an authority figure is not telling him. He's such a a little toady i think in these ways well
0: exactly yeah it's only within the social framework of roles like inspectors Mm -hmm. and things that it matters even if like because sheila says oh but we still did it and he's like but for for gerald that's not the point it's not the point that you did it it's not like a cosmic thing it's as you say it's like a structural thing arthur's like this all might be a kind of long con including the inspector we don't know for sure that the girl actually died let's call the infirmary so he calls the hospital and it turns out that no girl died today. <gasps> yeah, no suicides in months. Oh,
1: <laughs> zero days since yeah. <laughs> last suicide.
0: The whole family breathe a sigh of relief, except Sheila, who says that they're forgetting that they really did do the horrible things they confessed to, uh, and even if it didn't end up badly this time, it could do so in the future. Way to harsh everyone's <laughs> buzz.
1: So they all want to sweep the whole mess under the carpet and just pretend nothing happened. And Gerald even proposes to Sheila again, but she's like, I don't know, I just need time to process everything. At
0: least give it a day.
1: Yeah, like, I just updated my Facebook status to it's complicated. Can You know, I don't want to confuse people. Then the phone rings. A girl at the infirmary has just swallowed disinfectant and has died. An inspector is on his way over to ask them some questions. And then in, like, a perfect world, as the curtain lowers, we would get the, like, gentle strains of that Eminem song, the one that goes, guess who's back, back again. And presumably the interrogation is just going to continue on a loop forever, which is great because I just didn't get the f***ing closure I needed the first time. The end. (laughs) Yeah, so a film adaptation of this. We need something to overcome the schmaltzy sentimentality. I feel like this could be, if played right, a deeply weird, anxious, and much more interesting play if it's sort of given the right treatment. Mm. I want to see David Lynch's An Inspector Calls. (laughs) So put it in black and white like The Elephant Man, or give it a really, really weird color saturation like Wild at Heart. I want Laura Dern as Sheila, Diane Ladd as Sybil, Kyle McLaughlin as Gerald, Jack Nance as Arthur, and I want Willem Dafoe as the inspector. Ah,
0: very good. Because
1: Willem Dafoe, he's already terrifying and I'm already convinced that he can see me through my television. Visually, this would be cool as balls. Like, David Lynch does a lot of weird stuff with space and time. Right, and now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. So this one I know is satirical, but it amused me nonetheless. Somebody's had a very good time with a review. As a hardcore capitalist, I find this book frankly offensive. In society, we should think about the money. How would the money feel if it read this book? It would feel sad, betrayed, and quite frankly, disgusted. Money is quite the girl boss, along with my G, Mr. Burling. One star. (laughs) Why would you bother to write something? Unless it's a... do you think that's a sort of a potent, you know, pastiche or a piss-take of the, the morality of the play anyway?
0: Yeah. Is that what they're doing? things going
1: on, I think. Ooh, levels upon levels, layers on layers. (laughs) This one, one just the baffled energy of it. I loved it. Had to write about this book in my exam. It's not even a book. It's a play. One star. (laughs) Just just a sort of, why did you do this to me? So is this just a Twilight Zone plot then? Or is it like an actual Sartre ripoff?
0: Yeah, I think it's more in that sort of vein. I think it's meant to be a kind of not all- like allegorical, sort of symbolic type thing going on. I don't think. But the weird thing is that because it has all those references to the Titanic and stuff, we're kind of half mm. stuck halfway between it having a sense of social realism mm. and then also just being a sort of something a bit more abstract, which yeah. makes it sort of trapped between the two, so we don't really know what it is. <laughs> Uh, which I is kind just, of one of the problems of the play, I think.
1: Just don't dinkle a corporate con or a socialist workplace revenge grift if you're not gonna deliver. I was so disappointed.
0: Because it's not really about anything, is it? Like, what is it for? Did
1: you learn a lesson here today? Apart from, you know, <laughs> capitalism is stern and capitalism is unforgiving and Jeff Bezos and I need to mend our ways. Or I learned that I should just get rich enough to buy a private jet and I hope that you and all the rest of the poors hurt your necks looking up at it.
0: Well, it's weird because as we've been saying that, although Ghoul, like, he's not wrong in the things that he says, but it's kind of his purpose being there feels wrong. Yeah. The whole conceit of him being an inspector dealing with a kind of suicide case feels convoluted and strange. And I wonder if that's yeah. deliberate, but I don't know how it's meant to be deliberate. But the whole thing feels like it doesn't really work. It feels like kind of like a like a Mobius strip or something like it's like yeah. it's less than it really is
1: what's the implication then that Ghoul is a ghost I mean the the station calls at the end and says oh we're letting you know somebody's died and we're sending an inspector over is it Ghoul again or is it somebody else and also why are they sending somebody over it's a suicide like you know what I mean like mm. these things you just blow on it a little bit and the whole brick wall turns out to be cardboard and falls over it just doesn't bit of an
0: obvious metaphor
1: oh but... god sorry <laughs>
0: Be. Is that the point? though? I'm kind of wondering if that's not the point that it that it is a kind of facade for something, but I'm not sure what. But yeah, but yeah. what
1: is the question? Like, it feels like there was almost something here where I keep thinking it cannot be this surface level. It, it there's got to be something I'm not seeing.
0: When I saw it first, I assumed that Ghoul was a ghost that was kind of warning them yeah. about this thing to come and to like change your ways, like Scrooge. Yeah. But I didn't. It didn't really occur to me for some reason. But until you said it, that it was it could be a sort of time loop thing that they're just stuck in time forever that it's just going to repeat that night is going to be like, you know, Groundhog Day. Yeah, which I think makes it more interesting considering all the historical stuff that it is set in 1912, not in the 40s. It kind of makes it seem like a much more cynical play than it is Like we've had since between 1912 and 1945, we've had all these kind of dreams of social progress and they've all failed and we are just going through the same old shit. It Kind of makes me think it could be like that.
1: But at the very least they're sending over another inspector even if it's somebody else or whatever. They're going to have to go through presumably some of this again. Mm. But I was thinking is is that going to have any impact the second go around? They've all exposed their secrets and confronted their demons they all know everything some of them are just really doubling down saying yeah but that's ultimately not my fault yeah well i was just thinking like say it's ghoul who shows up again he's not investigating a real crime so they can just refuse to participate they could kick him out and if it if it is ghoul he's not even a real inspector they could call the cops on him
0: yeah yeah but how do they know that the cop that they're calling on Gould is a cop That's the worry when you start dealing with fake cops.
1: I mean, I suppose if you call the Could be the a stripper station. or something. <laughs> oh, that's the sexiness that this play yeah. is leading.
0: Huh? <laughs> Inspector cool Gould turned out to... <laughs> the end, we put it right at the end, if after all of the... the kind of tape down, then he have got the old tape player out and start dancing. <laughs> also, my big thing was, could the family just be like, well, we're all socially conditioned too? You know, it's not my fault.
1: <laughs> Apologies for the gentry. I didn't expect to hear that from you. Well,
0: but that is the message. The message of the play is that we're all products of society and we're all mutually influential. I suppose you could say that the bourgeoisie or who, whoever have more agency mm-hmm. in economic terms. Terms, But in cultural and moral terms, they don't really, do they? I don't think. They are products mm-hmm. of their circumstances as much as Eva Smith is.
1: In, in terms of de- detective fiction, mm. How does this work as detective fiction? Because I was thinking, Inspector Gould's a real tight canon.
0: You want him to have, like, nah, just one more thing. You want him to be like a. Uh, well, what's I, his name?
1: He, he didn't really. Peter he didn't have a personality at all.
0: No, he is just a cipher, isn't he? The big thing that I wanted to talk about was the 1992 adaptation, because sure. in, in that, they make it much more obvious that it's about the 1940s commentating on the 1910s mm-hmm. and the kind of saying you know you just wandered complacently into two world wars Mm -hmm. and one world cup and uh you know look at us we're we're paying the paying the price for it and inspector Gould is dressed up like a 40s detective he's like in a trench coat and a fedora Mm -hmm. but they're all dressed up in their sort of 1910s dinner jackets yeah so in that sense he his lack of character the fact that he's just a cypher is made much more to his advantage or made a strength if you can call that a strength, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, that he has the the benefit of hindsight, whereas they're, they have all of this ahead of them.
0: But also just that he is this kind of magical abstract figure that comes in and just says, you've ballsed it up. I had loads of stuff to say about William Beveridge. Looking back at it now, that looks mental.
1: Who's William Beveridge? He's
0: the architect of the welfare state. I was just thinking that- His that... last
1: name is Beveridge? Yeah. What about Eric's morality? Yeah. Eric is the weirdest character in this. So there, there are several facets going on. So he's this awkward, uncomfortable little puke. He's also an alcoholic. He's a guy trying to confront his demons with no patience for hypocrisy. He's also a thief. And essentially a rapist, mm. just what in the world? Like, what do we make of that then? Is it sort of talking about how everyone is on some sort of sliding scale or everyone's sort of great? Because
0: well, But Eric also is such a chaotic figure as well. It's not just about a sliding scale. Yeah. Because I suppose well, that's... He, he's done the worst things, you might say. And, well, I suppose you would say in terms of he's the one that, the only one that's actually committed a crime. Yeah. But he's also the most repentant, or he and Sheila are the most repentant. Yeah. So he's just this kind of force for chaos, I assume. Or, like, a, Which... he's a kind of dysfunctional product of the system, like, even yeah. from the beneficiaries of the system, I suppose. He's the kind of... he's a parallel to Eva Smith in that sense, maybe.
1: A lot of this is just plot recap.
0: Yeah, well, it's a very synoptic play, isn't it? It so doesn't it's... really go much into morality or into... as just as much as it's not a very symbolic play. So we are just kind of left with, like, well, what's the point of this weird character? You're right. You
1: and I had a hard time with this because we're, like, we're recapping what's essentially a pretty basic recap already. Yeah. So it's like, well... How do I? I felt like I was reading aloud the Wikipedia page. Well, exactly. Not so
0: much as it's not just a synoptic play, in as much as it doesn't really have much kind of po- poetic or language or whatever. But also, yeah, you're right that it is just Ghoul recounting things that people have done to them,
1: or people recounting. Yeah, their, yeah. So
0: you kind of like you know, it doesn't show; it tells.
1: Um, can we just talk about the one? overt metaphor we get in this, which is you know, Sheila's always, always going on about how her mother has walls around her heart. I mean, medically speaking, Sheila's a liar, but uh, (laughs) the metaphor itself is just very clunky. And I didn't know, is this an attempt at, uh, like a bad attempt at psychology? Because I mean, this is when, you know, psychology is getting very popular, as we've talked about for several of the texts in this show, like any text that we have in the fifties, I'm like, because psychology has arrived. Mm. And I didn't know if this was priestly Attempting to interrogate that a little bit, like her level of denial is extraordinary. But but he doesn't. It doesn't really go anywhere.
0: Well, I mean, Crime and Punishment is a hundred years older than this, and that has far Way more psychological more. insight. So I don't know if we could talk about it purely in terms of history. Although I suppose maybe you could talk about how psychoanalysis is so like mechanized or you know blunt medicalized mm. that these sorts of like heavy-handed attempts at exploring psychology are more of their peri- of this period. But I don't know, it just felt a bit like...
1: It just, it felt like, it's like he heard about it from a friend, but didn't quite know what yeah, it was. Yeah, it does
0: seem a bit ill-informed. to play, doesn't like it? Like he,
1: like, you know at a cocktail party somewhere, mm. somebody was explaining Freud to him or... <laughs>
0: There wasn't really much of their resistance either, was there. They all kind of came clean quite quickly. Mm. And even talking about attempts at resisting... Mm-hmm. It's over with pretty quickly. Yeah, the play. I hate to say it, but the play could be a bit longer, couldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> there a bit more yeah. stuff going on in this. I wonder who it's for? What's it for? What was this for? <laughs> Why did it happen?
1: Oh no, Daniel's getting into the big existentialist questions. What's it all for? Yeah. Write in, people, if you have an idea. Message boards are going to light up tonight. I
0: really would not like to do GCSE. I mean, it's not—it's not necessarily a bad play. I remember enjoying the production I saw.
1: I could see this being a good play, but to study this, this seems like yeah. a very hard play yeah, for GCSE. It's dry. Yeah. Yes, dry yeah. It's dry. Is what it is. There's just—I mean, like we're sitting here. We have—we both have PhDs in literature, and we're trying to carve something out of this that could reasonably be useful yeah. for GCSE Anyone, or A yeah. level or something. I. I got nothing. I feel like I would really need, I'd need to use that PhD in a way I've never used before to get something out of this. Because I feel like you also need a really specific in-depth context of both 1945 Mm. and 1912, and to understand very deeply the cultural and social differences between the two and what's in between them and what's coming. To be able to really, de- if this is a commentary on one time period looking at another, you need to kind of know both of them really well to yeah. get the nuance. And
0: I think everybody goes to see that 92 revival, which mm-hmm. is still on now. You also need to know about 92? 92. Yeah, yeah, the post just immediately after the Cold War. So your, your homework is Francis Fukuyama, Beveridge, and who's someone from
1: 1912? Veblen? Was he working there? Yeah,
0: yeah. Bit of Torstein Veblen. Whack him in there. Yeah, Max Weber. <laughs> seems like hard work to me, but whatever. What do I know?
1: Right. So here's some advice. Uh, actually, do you want to do it? Because this is Daniel's advice today.
0: This helped me a lot, anyway. That it it's very helpful to compare different adaptations of a play.
1: Yeah, because we had told you in I think our Othello episode that sometimes it's it's easier to watch a stage adaptation rather than just dealing with the text. Sometimes that helps, and you're saying compounded. yeah it's
0: good well because early productions as I've already said they're like a whodunit drawing room piece They're sort of like parodies but very ultimately quite realistic the production from the 1990s and onwards is much more like allegorical and it commentates on the historical moment of the plays composition as well as its relationship to the period portrayed so I think that shows that there is a lot you can do with these ostensibly dry works but like you were saying Abby that maybe that's a little bit too much hard work on the director Also, I suppose just yet with historical fiction in general, it's important to remember that it's a product of the time in which it was written. Don't just think it's a a window onto the past.
1: I like that. I think that's really good advice. Great. And thank you for uh, covering my ass, because I just could not... I'm sitting here looking at this going, I I don't have any advice to give on this one. Well, I
0: never give any advice, so I suppose (laughs) it's about time I uh, pulled my weight.
1: So, our clue to the next episode. We are going into our Halloween season, so our next two episodes are going to be Spooky Stories... Our next book is pretty much universally agreed to be the first example of its genre.
0: Ooh, okay. I'm thinking. So
1: what is that? What's a spooky genre? What's the first one? And it also contains what's possibly the grossest thing we've read on this podcast so far. Someone gets covered in someone else's nosebleed. Right. So please write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen and, you know, please rate and review us as well. It really helps. And uh, from my co-host Daniel and myself, see you next time. Yeah, I thought
0: you actually had something there.
1: I had something and then you looked up and I got scared.
0: Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Center for Critical Inquiry and to society and culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at shelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on twitter and do not i'm going to remind you do not forget to rate
1: review and subscribe do not forget thank you